Hey, I'm Steph. I'm Alex. And this is Not Today. Fantastic. I'm doing great. We've just had a nice uh, revival of hangover oh. from you. <laughs> you know, a little coconut, little Advil. I or no, coconut water. I wasn't going to mention my hangover. I don't feel it really anymore. But yeah, I did. I have. I had a little Advil, a little coconut water, and I'm back to life. And here we yeah, are. Yeah, that's all you need. A little avocado toast. We're back in business. That's all you need, baby. You know, I had some coffee. I'm feeling good. Yeah. Hopefully there won't be too many noises. Yeah, I hope. Shit. Who knows? You know, but you never know. Anyway, you want to just jump on in? It's usually what we do. Yeah. I've been. Uh, this might be a tough one. Well, yeah. From what I've been told. Yeah. I mean, I was going to start this by giving pretty much all the trigger warnings. Just, I just wanted to start out by saying this woman survived a serial killer, and she did tell her story on a few different TV shows. Um, however, she did post a YouTube video herself telling her story, And she mentioned that these TV shows left out a lot of detail of her attack. So I'm going to tell her story the way she clearly wants it to be told with these details that are uncomfortable to listen to sometimes. Um, So I just wanted to put it out there that this story does include graphic detail and it is a very intense one. So just wanted to let you guys know before we jump in. Yeah, be prepared, I guess. Yeah. But you know, I mean, you have to respect that this is how she wants it to be told. She doesn't want people to uh what's it called like gloss over it yeah or sugarcoat it i completely understand and so. i because i was i started out learning about this story on one of those tv shows that she did an interview for and mm. i was watching it about halfway through and then i looked i just happened to go onto youtube to see what else was there and i found her with like a video of her talking about her story that was like a good half an hour longer than the TV show that I was watching. So I was like, okay, this is definitely going to have a lot more detail. And she expressed uh, annoyance at these TV shows that like they didn't tell her story the way she intended. So, uh, you know, it's coming straight from her mouth and I didn't want to. Yeah. No, that's so gross though. Yeah. To have a TV network that produces your story and then they don't, I don't know, get your sign off or you're okay on it. Yeah. Like, I'm just thinking if we ever did anything where we kind of directly public, like directly communicated with and published a story for a person Mm -hmm. or about a person, I feel like I would want to send it by them. Of course. Before we even published it. Yeah. I mean, definitely. Right. And then, you know, if we need to edit it or change it, we would. But I think like the most the utmost importance would be respecting their story and telling it how they wanted definitely to be told i'm sure it it wasn't coming from like a malicious place it was probably more likely that these tv shows only have a very specific time frame that they can put out an episode like this episode could only be 25 minutes so they had to cut out certain things to like yeah. make a tv show but you know she obviously didn't like that so she told it herself, and I mean, fair here enough. We are. But I, I also wonder if they cut out some of the more gory details just because people would be uncomfortable. Definitely, That's probably it too. Yeah, they did. I mean, there were a couple of things that I just fully did not know until I listened to her story. So I'm going to talk about it the way she wants it to be told. Period. So, so let's get started. 
September 27, 1992, Jennifer S. Benson was 19 years old. She was living in Palm Springs, California, and worked in Desert Hot Springs in a home for disabled children where she took care of six young girls. She had recently moved out of her parents' home and gotten her own apartment, and because of that, she didn't have access to her parents' car anymore, and she didn't have a car of her own, so she relied on the bus to get her to and from work, which made her commute pretty lengthy considering her apartment was about 30 minutes away from this home. Jennifer worked the night shift, working from 10 p.m. to 6 a.m. Rough. So, graveyard hours, not good. And the night of December 27th, 1992, Jennifer made her way to the bus stop as she usually did. But as she was waiting, she decided to run into into the store to get some candy for the kids. She didn't really know the bus schedule very well, so she wasn't sure how long she would be waiting. But as she was in line at the store, she saw the bus driving away. Seeing that sent her completely into a panic. The bus had made Jennifer late three nights in a row, and because of that, she was warned if it happened again, she was going to be fired. So she didn't just miss her bus, she was going to lose her job because of it. As she stood there completely upset with herself, she heard a kind voice saying, Hey, do you need a ride? Oh no. Seeing her miss this bus, a man in a car had pulled up and offered her a ride. Jennifer's knee-jerk reaction was just to say no, she didn't need a ride, but then she thought about the situation she was in and came to the conclusion that this wasn't just a ride, it was a solution, so she got into his car. This man was Andrew Erdialis. Erdialis was born on June 4th, 1965 in Dalton, Illinois, to Alfred and Margaret Erdialis. Both parents had a history of mental illness in their family, and he was allegedly abused and neglected by his parents and also molested by his sister and a male cousin, which is absolutely horrifying. During his childhood, he did not have many friends and was an average student. In June of 1997, shortly before his 13th birthday, he beat the family dog to death with a baseball bat and told his parents the animal had fatally injured itself in a fall. So he basically took no blame and was like, he, he fell and died, but that was not the case. Throughout his high school years, especially through high school, he was known as a loner. He was a social outcast and told a fellow school member at a graduation reunion that he killed two prostitutes in California. At, at a what? At a reunion for high school. So this was post-graduation, but he came to this graduation reunion and basically gloated that he had killed two prostitutes in California. And those are his words, by the way, not not mine. But Holy shit, could you imagine? No. Yeah, but I mean, how unnerving to hear that at your reunion. Yeah. And he's bragging about it. You didn't even, like, prompt him, I'm sure. No, I mean, how do you prompt that conversation? Hey, have you ever killed anyone? No, no, but like, what are you doing now? Like, oh, what what do you do do for work? What do you do for fun? Professional serial killer, that's all. (laughs) Okay, cool. So after graduating high school in 1982, Erdialis joined the United States Marine Corps, where he was stationed at Camp Pendleton near San Diego. So that's why he was in California. Most people join the military to support their country or for schooling purposes. But for him, it seemed as if the only reason he joined was so he could learn how to kill people. In 1991, he was honorably discharged. Really? from the Marine Corps and moved back to his parents' home in Chicago. However, in September of 1992, he returned to California for a holiday 
which brings us to when he met Jennifer on the side of the road. So as the car pulled away from the curb, Jennifer got some false sense of security because she figured he can't be a crazy person. He just pulled away from the curb and didn't immediately attack me or do anything sketchy. No, that's actually worse. Yeah. On the drive, they made a lot of small talk. And again, she was given this false sense of security because he was being nice to her. She said he was just a regular guy next door. Not only did she not feel threatened by him, but she felt bad for prejudging him. He did a few weird things on the drive, but nothing completely creeped her out. When she mentioned she wanted to act, he asked if she was going to do porn, and she told him no and called him a sicko, which he didn't like, but he laughed it off. He had also been sitting at a red light, and when it turned green, he sat there for a moment and looked around and said the desert is so quiet, so peaceful. Jennifer definitely thought that was weird, but it wasn't anything to jump out of the car for, which is what she said in her words. Right. When they started talking about where Jennifer worked, she told him everything about it. She said she was proud of what she did and liked talking about it, but was also incredibly naive to tell this strange man about her schedule. She told him she worked alone in this house with six disabled young girls, and she would get off at six in the morning and that she always took the bus back home. Oh, no. When they pulled up to her work, the man asked for Jennifer's number, and she wasn't interested in him, but she was still in a rush and also didn't want to hurt his feelings since he had helped her out. Fake so, number. So she gave him a fake number by changing the last digit on the actual phone number, assuming that she would just never see this man again and she didn't have to worry about it. When she made it into work, she felt a little strange about the situation and called a friend to see if they could pick her up in the morning, but they told her they couldn't since their car had just broken down. But she brushed it off as an overreaction and went along with her normal shift. The next morning, September 28th, 1992, at 6 a.m., when the next woman arrived at the home to take over, Jennifer grabbed her backpack and walked outside. As she walked outside, she set her bag down for a moment in the driveway, when down the street, she saw at the bus stop a car that looked very similar to the man from the night before, and it looked like someone might be in the car, but also she thought her mind may have just been playing tricks on her. She wasn't scared, but she got the feeling that she should walk in the opposite direction from the bus stop, so she did, which happened to be more desolate. As she was walking... She heard a car come up next to her and roll down the window. And she didn't even look up because she knew it was the same man. She didn't feel scared at all. She just didn't know how to tell him to leave her alone because she wasn't interested. And when she did look up, it was, in fact, Andrew Urdialis, who had given her the ride earlier. He had pulled up and said, hey, how are you doing? Do you want to get some breakfast? She told him she didn't have time to get breakfast, so he told her that he would just drive her home. And she got back into his car because she really didn't want to take the bus. And clearly, he had already dropped her off at work, so he might just drop her back off at home, you know? Yeah, but, you know. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, but, Uh, you know. I mean, what is there to say? I know. I understand why she thinks that, but the fact that we're here now talking about it means that she's wrong. That is what I'm trying to express Mm -hmm. with those words. Yes. Yeah, I understand. As they were driving, he casually brought up the phone number that she gave him the night before and asked what the number was. 
and she said it was the number to her work, which is when Jennifer said he turned into a completely different person. He started screaming at her, telling her that he had called the number and some old bitch answered. She was in complete shock, and that's when he pulled over, grabbed her head, and slammed it into the dashboard. After slamming her head into the dash, he opened the glove compartment, and inside, Jennifer saw a knife and a gun. He then pulled her hands behind her back and tied her wrists with twine. The entire time Jennifer was in so much shock, all she could say was, is this a joke? He reached over and put her seat all the way back, and they began driving again. He tried to pull her over to him to perform oral sex on him, but he couldn't get an erection and got really frustrated, so he punched her and pushed her back onto her seat as he drove. Jennifer said she knew in that moment that he was going to take her out into the most desolate part of the desert. She was trying to stay positive and hoping that he wouldn't make a certain turn that would bring them out into this desert, but right as they pulled up to this intersection in her head, she was saying to herself, please don't turn right, please don't turn right. And then, of course, he turned right. The whole time she was trying to tell him anything he wanted to hear. She said she would do anything he wanted. She would rob a bank with him. She even said that he could rape her because in her mind, she felt as if giving him permission would give her some kind of control in this situation. And her mind was just going to the worst places possible. So anything she could do to keep herself alive, she was going to do. But he would either ignore her or scream at her to shut up or call her a whore. It was any of those things. The only thing she could see were the tops of telephone poles as the car drove deeper into the desert, and with each one that passed, she lost more and more hope that she would ever make it out of there alive. After they had passed about 20 telephone poles, he pulled the car off the road onto a dirt road. It was just a little after six in the morning, so the light was just starting to come out. Jennifer was still sitting in the passenger seat completely in shock, just waiting for what she believed would be her last moments alive. And as she was sitting there that morning, she thought about how people were making their morning commute. There were people driving past them on the road and just going about their normal routine. And here she was in the car with evil personified, potentially living out the last moments of her life. And she thought about how unfair that was and how alone she felt. He punched her a few times before he violently took the seatbelt off of her and pushed her seat back up and took the knife back out. Jennifer was wearing a long sweatshirt and jean shorts, and he put the knife under the sweatshirt and with a flick of his wrist cut off her bra and did the same with her shorts and her underwear. That's when he climbed onto her lap and Jennifer said as he looked into her eyes, all she could see was rage. And after everything had happened so quickly, she realized that he had done this before. This was definitely not his first time. He then attempted to rape her, but was unsuccessful due to erectile dysfunction. To Jennifer, this was obviously terrifying because she had never been with anyone in that way, but she knew that something was wrong. She knew that because he couldn't get an erection, that this was a problem. And if her life depended on him doing that to her, it and it wasn't happening, that could mean the difference between life and death. So she told him that it was okay, and he could do whatever he wanted. He just sat there and looked at her, unmoving, and she said his eyes were black. He was evil, and she said it felt like she was looking into the eyes of the devil. He then told her to tell him that she loved him. Jennifer had grown up in a home where they never said that they loved each other. 
Her parents barely ever said it to her. They would reserve it for when someone died or something like that. But Jennifer had never actually said I love you to her parents or to anyone for that matter. So when he gave her this request, she obviously struggled. She took a minute because she wanted it to seem real. And she said I love you, but what came out didn't sound good. And because he didn't feel like this was a sincere I love you, he grabbed her underwear and shoved them into her mouth so far that they went down her throat and then grabbed her bra and tied it around her face to keep the underwear in her mouth. She thought that this was going to be the end for her. Her hands were still tied behind her back, and he was sitting on her legs, so she couldn't move at all. She had absolutely no way to defend herself. She gagged and had a reflex that let her cough up the underwear, and she was gasping for air, and through that was trying to say, I love you. After a moment, he removed everything from her face and told her to tell him that she loved him again, and she knew that this time it needed to sound believable. She said she would have done anything he asked her to. She would have done one-handed cartwheels through the desert if he wanted, but this was something she didn't know how to do. She tried to say it again, and the look on his face looked as if he was actually trying to receive the I love you. But he got really, really angry and started strangling her. Still sitting on her legs, all she could do was look into his evil eyes. And after a while, she wasn't even in pain anymore. She couldn't breathe in or out, but she felt nothing. Jennifer said she started having thoughts that she thinks people must have right before they die, because all she felt was love. She was still conscious, but she closed her eyes because she didn't want to die looking at him. And she went through a few different thought processes. Jennifer couldn't believe that this was happening to her, that out here in the middle of the desert at 7 a.m., she was going to be killed, while her parents were asleep in their beds and the other woman had taken over at work for her and her friends were doing whatever they were doing, going to class. She was in the desert about to die. But then, with all of her heart and soul, she tried to push as much love out of her as possible. She wanted to send love to any person in her life. Her parents, even though they weren't perfect, her friend that couldn't give her a ride the day before, anyone she felt a slight bit of annoyance to or anger toward, she wanted to let that go and for them to feel her love. And then she saw white. She didn't see the desert or his face. She had absolutely no recollection of anything, and she said she almost heard some faint music. She couldn't entirely explain that part, but she described it as amazing grace, but not really. She was like, I don't really know how to tell you what I experienced, but it was, it was something. I have chills. But all she knew was that she was happy. Each week I speak to inspirational people. Each one of them has been on their own remarkable journey. They've all chosen to share their stories with one aim, that if people can relate and get comfort from it if it can help someone as one of my guests said there's so much going on in the world we should be focusing on helping one another and making each other better each one is a superhero not because they have special powers it's because in spite of what they've gone through they keep on going i find them remarkable please listen to chatholic and hear their stories This is the last thing I would have thought 
That she would feel love while being killed by a serial killer? Yeah. It's insane. It is. Incredible. Mm -hmm. I don't know. It's just maybe surprising is the right word. Yeah. But I guess it's kind of one of those things where people talk about their life flashing before their eyes and, you know, thinking about the people that they love. So if she truly was knocking on death's door, which she kind of was, I guess it, it kind of makes sense. Yeah. And she said in that moment, she believes that she died. The TV shows that she went on to tell her story never let her say that, but she believes wholeheartedly that she died in that moment. Why didn't they let her say that? I don't know. She said they wouldn't let her say it, but she believes that she died. That makes no sense. Well, that's why she wanted to tell her own story. That's bullshit. Yeah, I mean, I was already on her side, but like, why wouldn't you air that? I don't know. I mean, but it's just, like, gross that they're going to make money off of it and then not even have it told the way she wants it. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. She also recalled being lifted out of the car, and she said she felt complete happiness. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's right, because this is similar to what other people describe when they die. Yeah. Isn't it because they your brain releases DMT when you're about to die? I don't know. I think that there's something like that where you kind of have this mystical experience like she's describing. It would make sense. I mean, I don't really know the science behind it, but I do know that people describe this sort of... Dissociation? Yeah, dissociation are just like, I saw a bright light, I felt happy, I felt love. Like, I've heard people say this before, so this doesn't sound crazy. Yeah. Jennifer said she doesn't know how much time had passed, but then she saw this man's eyes again. And this time they were close up to her and then far away and then close up and so on. And that's when she felt her body again. Almost like when you fall asleep in a chair and kind of jolt awake is what she described it as. And she realized what had been happening. He was banging her head into the chair behind her. She said it was possible that he had resuscitated her with that force. But this is the only part of the story that she doesn't know exactly what happened because she said she wasn't all there. And she believed that he brought her back because he didn't want her to die yet. He wanted to continue torturing her. It's just, like, chilling, eerie. Like, I don't... How many terrible words can I use to describe that moment? But that's a different level of evil, to kill someone and bring them back to continue torturing them. After that, she recalled he started what she thought was sucking on her neck. She was completely weak and checked out at that point. As she sat there, she felt what she thought was his slobber going down her chest. But as he pulled away and sat up, he opened his mouth for a second and she saw blood and skin in his teeth. Jennifer said she really didn't care at that moment and must not have felt anything. But she realized that he had just bit a chunk out of her neck. I don't even know how to wrap my head around that, to be honest. How do you do that to anyone, to anything? I don't know. That's like a true monster. Yeah, I'm just really glad she didn't feel it. Yeah, me too. Yeah, she didn't she didn't describe any kind of pain in that moment. She she literally just said, I thought it was slobber and then I he sat back and I saw like pieces of flesh. It's so unnerving. And she looked down and saw that it wasn't spit going down her chest, it was her own blood. At that point, He pulled her out of the car, and Jennifer thinks for sure that this was going to be the end. He went around, and honestly, she wanted it at this point. She wanted to go back to that place that she had been. She wanted this to be over. He went around to the back of the car and popped open the trunk. 
and Jennifer could see a bunch of knives and blades sticking out of a paper shopping bag that he had pulled out of the car. And seeing that, she decided her best bet was to just run. She thought she may die today, but she didn't want to get cut up. She still had on her sweatshirt, and her hands were still tied behind her back with twine, but she ran. She knew that she was so far away from civilization, he would either catch her or he would shoot her, but she had to try. As she was running, she prepared herself to be shot, and she said she was kind of running with her eyes squinted because she felt like she was bracing herself to be shot, and she felt something hit the back of her head, and she was pulled backward, and her head hit the ground. He had caught up to her and grabbed her by the hair and was pulling her back through the desert back to his car. He pulled her through cacti and rocks and the dirt until they finally made it back. And that's when he told her again to perform oral sex on him, but she told him to fuck off. (laughs) That's not funny, but... It's just a bit of relief. Like, yes, all this terrible, unbelievable, horrible shit has happened to her. And in this moment, she just said, fuck off, which is what we all want to say, you know? Right. Yeah. Just a little bit of control. It reminds me of the story we covered with the the boxer. What was her name? Sherry Martin. Sherry. Christy Ma- Martin. Christy Martin said the same thing. Yeah. To her husband when mm-hmm. he literally had a gun to her head. Mm-hmm. She's like, I forget what her exact words was, but it was something like this. Yeah. Where it was like, fuck you, do it. Yeah. And that's, at this point, she had reached that level because she said she wanted to die at that point. She just wanted it to be over. She didn't want him to continue torturing her. And as much as she wanted to survive, she didn't really see any way out of this. Yeah. I mean, she already tried to get away. Right. And she wasn't going to plead for her life anymore. And she certainly wasn't going to give him what he wanted. She then called him a coward and told him to kill her. So this is very much like what you just said. He pulled out his gun and put it in her mouth. And then she said the gun made a sound, like a click sound, but nothing happened. So he was just toying with her. He either didn't have it loaded or he like cocked it or something. It clicked, but nothing happened. He then put her into the trunk and slammed it shut and got into the car and started driving again. In the trunk, she thought about everything she had ever learned in her life to get out of this situation. And this this next part is pretty weird, just so we know. I'm not trying to get preachy, because I have no idea what I even believe about the universe or religion, but this is what Jennifer did and what she experienced and what happened from her perspective. She remembered that her grandmother had taught her to pray if she was ever in a scary or dangerous situation. And Jennifer wasn't a very religious person herself at that point, but she basically screamed out to God, if you're there, let me break free from these binds and escape out of this trunk. She didn't even fully believe anything would happen, but she was desperate at this point. She was completely hyperventilating, but she felt like there had to be something because when he strangled her, she went somewhere. She said she went to some place and she wanted that back. So she even prayed if she couldn't get out that she would just die right then and there. After that, she said a sense of calm washed over her. And again, I have no explanation for this, but Jennifer said the twine that had been restraining her hands behind her back started popping off of her wrists. 
Whoa. She said she heard a popping noise and then realized that the twine had come undone and she could pull her wrists in front of her. Wow. Isn't that insane? That's why I'm like, I don't know. I don't know, yeah. dude. But I got this chills is, again. Yeah, seriously. She, at this point, didn't take this as some divine sign from God, though, and even took the twine, and this is dark, but she did try to strangle herself because she was so in such a dark place, but her body wouldn't let her do that. She started to breathe and got calm again, and although she was in the dark of the trunk, she started to really focus and try to look for a way out. Jennifer said she had grown up with no electricity in her home, and she said that kind of trained herself to see in the darkness. And there were no trunk releases inside this trunk then. Like, this was 1992. There were no trunk releases. Yeah, I was just about to ask that. Yeah. But she thought to herself, okay, where would you put the key in? In the middle. So she knew she needed to get to the middle and find something that she could turn to unlatch the trunk herself. She said it was like, something had come over her and she started tearing into the interior of this trunk and tearing it apart. She clawed at the carpet that lined the trunk because she knew that if he opened that trunk again, she would be dead. And she did know of the whole push out the lights thing and like trying to get out the trunk that way, but she knew that she didn't have time for that. She said you just need to rip the trunk apart and in a situation like that, you can do it because of all the adrenaline. Once she had finished ripping through the carpet lining of the trunk, she reached her hand inside and felt two circular pieces and a latch. So she reached for the latch and turned it, and she held the top of the trunk because she didn't want it to fly up, but as she felt the car going really fast, she let the trunk fly up before pulling it back down because she did want him to see it, and she wanted him to pull over because she knew that they were on a main road at this point. And he did. He pulled the car over very quickly and got out and pointed the gun at her and then got flustered and shut the trunk again before getting back into drive. And he screamed at her, I will shoot you through the back seat if you if you do that again. But she didn't care at that point. She, she wanted out of there and she's going to do anything she can to either survive or die, you know? Mm-hmm. They were on a pretty major road, like I said, and he didn't want anyone to possibly drive by and see her in the trunk because people were commuting to work. It was like just past 7 a.m. So he wanted to keep going because he was taking her to another location to most likely kill her or just keep up with this torture. But as he tried to pull away from the side of the road, Jennifer heard as the tires spun, but nothing happened. The car had gotten stuck in soft sand. No fucking way. Yeah, the car had gotten stuck. And as he was trying to drive out of the sand, he would turn around to yell at Jennifer. And although she was in the trunk, she could tell by the sound of his voice when he was pointed toward the back and when he was facing forward. So she waited until she heard him turn to face forward before she unlatched the trunk once again. But this time she jumped out and started running. By this time, it was almost 8 a.m. This road didn't have a ton of traffic on it, but... As she was running, she was able to grab onto the mirror of a car as it was driving by her. Wait, what? Yeah. Like while it's moving? Yes. She grabbed onto the mirror on the side of the car and started running with it to try and get them to stop the car and let her in. But as she was running with them, as fast as her legs could carry her, she saw a man and a woman in the car and the woman was yelling at her husband to go faster. 
Jennifer was running as fast as she could because she wanted to get a second to literally jump into their window. Like she was trying to get into their car by herself, but the man sped off. Jennifer kept running, but she almost lost her footing because this man like sped up and she almost completely tripped and fell. And she tried to keep herself from looking back, but when she did, she realized why the car had sped away. Erdialis was chasing her down the middle of the street, holding a machete over his head. So oh they see God. this half-naked, bloody woman running down the street, holding onto their car, and right behind her is a crazy person Psychopath with, with a, machete. a machete. Yes. She kept running as another car started to come toward her, and this time it was a truck with two men who happened to be Marines inside. Oh, no way. Yeah. They immediately pulled her into their car and they gave her a pair of jeans that just so happened to be in their car and fit her perfectly. And she told them everything that had happened. And they started to try and go after this man. But she told them not to do that since he had guns and weapons in the car. So they figured this was something for the police. And the men drove Jennifer to the nearest town, Marengo Valley, which was about 20 minutes away, and drove into a gas station where they called the police. Jennifer was then taken to the police station where she again told her story, but this time, nobody believed her. Not even her own parents. Are you fucking serious? Yep. Where's the the bite mark on her neck oh yeah and they they saw that and they measured it and stuff like that but they did not believe her how did the ha like you can't do that to yourself well okay so she said because she grew up without a tv she would tell stories a lot not like make things up and lie but she had an active imagination to keep herself entertained and because of that her parents thought she had made it up and then they told the police that who then believed the parents Jennifer knew she had never been one to tell horror stories, so she didn't know why her parents believed she would start now, and especially with something so drastic and, and insane, but she was so exhausted and she did not know what to do. The police asked her if a boyfriend had done that to her. Uh, shut the fuck up. Yeah. I'm done. Mm -hmm. I'm so fucking done. The Marines, you have two witnesses for a guy with a machete chasing her. You have another two witnesses that drove by and saw the same thing, right? Well, they weren't I mean, looking into witnesses or into evidence even really because they didn't believe it. They said it was a boyfriend. They said she got into some sort of domestic dispute. It was dispute. a boyfriend? That's well, what they were saying. even if it was a domestic dispute. Go after him. Go after right. them? Exactly. Wow, this, was, this, this is this is astounding. Yeah, no, this no, it is, is infuriating. Why is it so hard to like? Even if people are liars, why can't you look into it? I don't know. We can't look into it. You can't believe people enough to check basic facts. And there had already been other women who had been murdered in Southern California. I, I don't know. I guess this is not of concern. Yeah, I guess not. I. Right. I don't know. Maybe one of the most basic functions yeah. of the police to stop people exactly. from murdering other people and, yeah. you know, remove them from society. You would think. <sighs> she told them, no, it was not a boyfriend. Yeah, no shit, dumb fuck. <laughs> we're, we're angry this time. Oh, uh, yeah, I'm no, done. And, and rightfully so. I'm also I'm equally as angry, and I knew that this was going to get intense yeah i'm not pulling punches on any swear words this week 
Yeah. I'm done with that. Right. <laughs> and so they tried to bring her back to where it had happened. But as they drove her out to where... But as they were driving her out there, she would tell them where to turn to take them to where it happened, but they wouldn't listen to her. They wouldn't follow her directions. So now, not only do they, not only are they like, oh, a boyfriend did this and you're making this up, but she's like, okay, I'll take you exactly where it was, turn here. And they're like, actually, I'm going to turn left instead of right. What? Why are you even taking her out there if you're not going to follow her directions? You're wasting everyone's time. Exactly. So they did manage to get to the spot where the car had gotten stuck in the sand. But unluckily enough, there was a bulldozer there at this point. What? Yeah. So there were not any tire tracks because there was a bulldozer on top of it. And it had been, you know, doing work. What the fuck? I know. So like so completely unlucky in that there was... So there was no evidence other than the bite mark on her neck and the marks on her wrists from the twine, which is pretty good evidence, if you ask me. I, I would mean, say that's immediately corroborating. Yeah, no? like it's immediately like that's... And even if a boyfriend did do that, like that is a very clear indication of some really vile, violent shit. Yeah. What was their explanation? Like, oh, you guys are just into some kinky stuff where he literally rips flesh out of your neck? Yeah, I don't know. Um, but they believed the parents that said that this was a lie. They they were like, this isn't worth our time because she's lying. Oh, my God. I know. Why are her parents even there? I don't know. Honestly. Right. I mean, I know why, but they... What? I'm sorry. This is... <laughs> what are words? What, what is... are words when What's your happening? parents are like, oh, yeah. You have an active imagination. But she even said, like, I never made up, like, I wasn't a liar. I wasn't, like, telling these crazy horror stories or anything like that that would make them believe that now she would start doing it at 19. She said, oh, yeah, I would tell stories in my free time as a child because we didn't have a television. But, like, it wasn't anything bad or sinister or, like, you know, like, she, I don't understand. Here's my follow-up. Putting aside the bite on her neck and the marks on her wrist, does this mean just because she's a storyteller that any crime that she might come to the police with is not real? Well, I, I don't know, but I guess because this was so, like, out of nowhere and so violent and so random that they were like, oh, this has to be a lie. What do you mean? I don't Every know. violent thing is out of the blue. No? Yeah. No, I, I hear you. I'm I'm equally Most as pissed off. Most things? Yeah. I'm on your side. I don't have... This is... I'm just telling the story. Yeah, I don't even know. <laughs> I don't even know how to begin with these people. I know. They measured the bite mark and the teeth marks. Good job. Did you do that right? Asked her if this had been from a dispute with a boyfriend. And of course, she told them no again. And even if it hadn't. It's still violent. I'm going to break my microphone. I understand. I swear to God. I get it. She said he was a killer and he was going to murder her. And not only that, but he had done it before to other women. But they didn't believe her. After that, Jennifer went into a an incredibly dark place, which I'm sure is... How can you not? Understandable and you can imagine. Another very quick trigger warning for self-harm. She did begin cutting herself to get people to ask what had happened just so she could talk about it because she needed to talk to someone so desperately that she began harming herself that way people would talk to her which is so incredibly sad and dark 
That's so depressing and I, that I can't, no one would listen to her. I know. I can't even believe she had to go to that place to get any kind of, I don't know, not relief, but you know what I mean? Like support, support empathy. conversation. Yes, empathy. God, I'm like, I would listen to a random person on the street if yeah. they told me something like this. Yeah, I know. But she clearly didn't have the support system that she needed anywhere. Anywhere. Anyone like, that cared at all. Yeah, I don't know. Wow. When a friend found out that she had been cutting herself, she woke up strapped to a table in a mental hospital, which honestly was good. She yeah, needed it. Yeah, this has got to be the best place. She needed it, and she did feel safe there because she knew that this man couldn't get her in there. Because remember, they don't believe her, so this man is still out there. She doesn't. Right. And, and also, I mean, I'm sure at this point she's not working at the same place or whatever, but he knew her schedule. He knew around where she lived because he picked her up at this at the bus stop near her house like you can't change all that stuff about your life immediately you know like she's very scared for her life and rightfully so this man is a crazy person yeah and she's seen his face and she has been in his car and all this stuff so i i get it you know yeah but now she's in a mental hospital and she does feel a bit safer at least Eventually, she did get out of the hospitals, but for years, she thought that she was nuts. She had been convinced that she had made the entire thing up and even admitted it at one point in the hospital because she was surrounded by five men screaming in her face that she did. What? And her family- For what reason? I Who are these people? I don't know. I mean, she this had been- like a cult. I know. She had been diagnosed with a couple mental illnesses, like- or um, I don't know if that's the correct term, but, you know, like PTSD and like a couple of different like disorders and anxiety and depression and all this stuff. As you would imagine, someone this who had been through new- something extremely traumatic would have. But, you know, they thought she was crazy and her family still didn't believe her. Are those responses not normal to the situation that she no, has they been are. through? Exactly. Yes. Anxiety, PTSD, depression. Yes. How would you, like, go through that and then be happy? How can you do that? I don't know. Without any support? Nobody yeah. even believes you. You Like, you can't even talk to anyone about what happened mm-hmm. unless you actively harm yourself. Like, yeah. how is this going to produce mental wellness? Right. You, it, it begs Ridiculous. the question. I know. So directly after attacking Jennifer, Erdialis then escaped in his own vehicle. For three years, he committed no murders due to fear of being discovered until he returned to California in March of 1995. I'm going to go back a little bit and talk about the history of the murders of Andrew Erdialis, because although this is Jennifer's story, I, I want to still acknowledge the other victims of his brutal attacks. So Erdialis's first murder had taken place before Jennifer on the evening of January 18th, 1986. At Saddleback Community College in Mission Viejo, California, he stalked a 23-year-old communication art student, Robin Brandley, and stabbed her 41 times with a knife, right in front of her car, on campus. Two years later, on July 17, 1988, he shot 29-year-old Julie McGee with a 45 ACP caliber pistol. Her body was found in a ditch near Cathedral City, California. Two months later, Rudialis struck again in San Diego, killing 31-year-old Marianne Wells, whose body was found by police on September 25, 1988, in an abandoned warehouse. 
His fourth victim was 18-year-old Tammy Irwin, who was found on the streets of Palm Springs in April 17, 1989. And like I mentioned earlier, in 1991, he was honorably discharged from the Marine Corps and moved back to his parents' home in Chicago before returning back to to California in 1992, where he kidnapped and attacked 19-year-old Jennifer S. Benson. When he did return to California in March of 1995, he happened upon 32-year-old sex worker Denise Maney in Cathedral City, California, and Erdialis forced her into his car and drove her into the California desert where he shot her, undressed her, and left her corpse for scavengers. He then went back to Illinois and believed that he could commit murders just as easily in the surrounding area, so he became a security guard in a Chicago mall. He enjoyed great trust among customers and was in a family environment, so he was, he was fine. He was doing great. He crossed the state line into Bloomington, Indiana in April of 1996, where he murdered 25-year-old Laura Ulyaki. Her body was found on April 14th in Wolf Lake, Illinois, on the border of Chicago and Cook County, Illinois, and Hammond, Indiana. And on July 14th, 1996, police found the body of 21-year-old Cassandra Corum in the Vermilion River Mountains in Livingston County, Illinois. And on August 2nd, 1996, the body of 22-year-old Lynn Huber was found in Wolf Lake. Huber is presumed to be the last of Erdialis's victims. But that is a lengthy list of violent, senseless, random murders. All three of these final murders were telling because all three of these women were found stripped in a body of water, and all of them were known to police to be sex workers. Police were able to identify bullets used in two of these murders from being from the same gun, which was huge because all the other cases that Erdialis had been a part of, he had pretty much left no evidence for the police. And this was the first time that they were able to find something that linked it to him. I mean, they didn't know it was him at this point, but they were like, okay, this bullet is in fact tying these murders in Illinois together. It wasn't until 1996 when Erdialis was at all connected to the murders of these eight women. He was pulled over by authorities who found an unauthorized weapon in the car, and he did manage to get out of this by paying a fine, but a year later on April 23, 1997, they identified it as the murder weapon used to kill three Illinois women because another sex worker in that area had contacted police and told them, hey, this man had told me that he wanted to take me out to Wolf Lake and duct tape me and all this stuff and do all this really terrible things. And I said no when I got away from him. But just so you know, this is what this man said to me. So they said, hmm, this man also just had an unauthorized illegal weapon that he was charged for. So let's go get that weapon and see if it connects us. And it did. So he was arrested out of his parents' house in Illinois Uh, and very shortly after made a full and very detailed confession to all eight murders five years after the attack of Jennifer S. Benson. So she had to have people believe that she was crazy and she was in an incredibly dark place and scared for her life every day for five years. Yeah, I mean, thank God that the cops put this together. Yeah. Like, this is an example of great police. Yes, definitely. Like, this is what we want. Absolutely. And what we should praise, but, you know, they should have been looking from the start. 100%. And the these police in Illinois contacted the California police because they said, 
this man has been giving us a confession and I, I believe we can give you an answer to some of your cold cases. So this California, Southern Californian police officer then flew to Illinois and interviewed him himself and they did identify him as the murderer of these other women in California and Jennifer's attacker because he gave great detail about that as well, completely corroborating her story. Wow. Yeah. What was so difficult about all these murders were how random they all seemed to be. And up until they found those shell casings, like I said, there was no evidence to go off of. Erdialis also had no rational motive and said he was just agitated when women would beg for their lives. He's a crazy person. Like, that's the answer. He's an insane, evil shit stain. On April 29th, 1997, an indictment was brought against Erdialis However, legal and political debates delayed the trial opening for four years. Wait, what? There was what debate. It was about the death penalty, so we're gonna we're gonna get into that. So he had three trials in total. The first two were in Illinois, where he was eventually convicted of killing these three women there. After several delays, he was found guilty of the murders of Laura Oyaki, Lynn Huber, and Lynn Huber in Illinois in 2002, and was sentenced to death in that state. However, the following year, the state governor had all the death sentences commuted to life imprisonment. So he was taken out of the death penalty. And due to that commutation, prosecutors decided to try Erdialis for the murder of Cassandra Corum, and the judge in that trial sentenced him to death again in 2004. So he remained on death row for several years in Illinois until the government abolished the death penalty in the state in 2011, and his sentence was commuted to life imprisonment again. This second commutation led prosecutors in California to seek the extradition of Erdialis to Orange County so he could be tried for five murders in that state. So during his trial in Orange County, Denise Gragg, his attorney, claimed that his brain scans and psychological tests suggested partial fetal alcohol syndrome. According to the San Diego Union-Tribune, she argued that brain damage combined with a traumatic childhood caused him to have trouble managing his anger and his emotions. I think that would classify a lot more than just trouble regulating his anger and his emotions. Like, that is so much bigger than just not being able to get calm you know like seek anger management like what the hell that's so common in people to seek anger management or have anger issues and i can confidently say that i'm pretty sure i don't know anyone who's murdered eight people yeah this violently yeah i know people who have probably some anger issues who don't murder people but you know what i mean like imagine that it's so much more than that However, I mean, this is what she's supposed to do. Of course, it's her job, blah, 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 whatever. However, senior deputy district attorney Matt Murphy, who we have heard in many cases, said Erdialis was able to control his anger, but chose to attack his victims because he is a sadistic misogynist. And I agree. Hard to disagree. Yeah. In May of 2018, Erdialis was found guilty of all five murders in a jury trial and was sentenced to death for the third time on October 5th, 2018. But he would never face what he had coming to him because on Friday, November 2nd, 2018, at around 11.15 p.m., Erdialis was found unresponsive in his cell in San Quentin State Prison. He was alone in his cell and prison officials said the apparent cause of death was suicide by hanging when he was 54 years old. 
So not only is he a sadistic, evil person, but he's also a coward. Jennifer S. Benson was the only woman to ever escape an encounter with this monster. So let's end with something lighter. Where's Jennifer S. Benson today? She has a daughter, she is married, and recently published a memoir called The Girl in the Treehouse that was published in 2018. She gave birth to her daughter four years after her kidnapping, and she said her daughter helped her move forward and heal from what happened. She said, I didn't want my daughter to ever wish she had a different mom, so I turned myself into a different person. According to her author's bio, she continues to be an advocate for the victims who cannot speak for themselves and continues to speak on behalf of mental health awareness. She has since been diagnosed with PTSD, OCD, ADHD, bipolar disorder, depression, and anxiety, and spends her free time journaling and helping other PTSD survivors. Jennifer spends her time taking college courses and reading self-improvement books. She also loves to go on adventures with her support dog, Wesley, who is very cute. On, we need Wesley on the Instagram. I will, I will do that. On the 24th anniversary of her kidnapping and escape in 2017, she returned to the scene where she was taken by Erdie Alice in Desert Hot Springs, California. And this is the YouTube video I'm talking about that I watched to, you know, tell her story. She said, I wanted them to hear everything in my own words without interruption. I wanted them to feel like they were experiencing it with me. I am not ashamed or embarrassed to be a human, so I do not edit myself. I thought people would appreciate the rawness of it. And so that is the story of Jennifer S. Benson and how she survived the monster, Andrew Erdialis. I, I like the ending. That's so beautiful that she became a better person for her daughter yeah. and wanted to give her daughter the life that she thought she should have had, Yeah, it sounds like, and then is an advocate for people who have PTSD and she's doing it with that slew of diagnoses. Yeah. Diagnoses. Diagnoses. But I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm sure it's like, it, it's just very meaningful. Definitely. Um, and a beautiful place for this to end up. I really hope that she was able to like move on and is kind of, I think I, it sounds like she's living her life. Yes. You know, I think she's doing well. I mean, I'm sure you can't ever fully move on from something like that, but right. she is definitely, it seems, doing much better and is in a much better place. And she also, you know, dedicated her her time and her life. She she testified in court against Andrew Erdialis and, like, gave her whole statement about what happened, which is, I'm sure, incredibly hard and traumatic and scary and all right. those terrible things. But she felt like it was her responsibility because of the women that couldn't be there that day because of the eight other women who lost their lives by his hands so she's incredibly strong incredibly brave just an inspiration really so yeah i you know i didn't want to sugarcoat this story in any way because how can you really yeah um i just thought it was really important to tell it the way she wanted it to be told and yeah that's that on that there's something, I, I want to say meaningful, but there's something there to to tell the story exactly how it happened, to be true to the truth. Yeah. And, yeah, I don't know. It just seems like it was robbed from her for so long. Yeah. Where it was outright denied. And then after all this, the TV shows that she goes on, 
cut stuff out, sugarcoat it, cut it down, and it's not what it was. And then she put out the raw and real version of it. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I really respect that, that she was able to go back to court and testify, but also put out that video detailing her whole story. And not only that, but she was sitting in the desert exactly where it happened to her. So she, she was sitting in a chair in the desert, literally reliving it to get her story out there. Did you get a sense of how she felt in that moment from the video? I mean, she said it it was the first time she had been back to that spot since the night it happened or the morning, actually the morning it happened. Um, And she, it was very, it was definitely a very emotional experience for her. She was very emotional in how she was telling the story. And I mean, how could you not be? Of course. You can check it out. I mean, you can look at her video, just Google or not Google, go on YouTube and, and look up her name. It's like the first thing that pops up. So yeah. Anyway, let's have a palate cleanser. What is your good thing? I have one if you want me to go first. Please go first this week. Okay. Um, my good thing is that we are going to have some friends over tonight. We're going to have a dinner party that I'm very excited about. I love hosting. I think it's so fun. Mm-hmm. Um, part of me loves the chaos of it all. The like cleaning, the going to the store, the getting the snacks, the preparing the food, the On drinking the wine. making like, sure it's warm. Yeah, looking good. Like Pairing it correctly. Yeah, I think I, I think I like that. So I'm excited to, after this, like very much take a shower and get ready oh yeah and i mean we called in mama's help oh my Your grandma my grandmother yeah my i call her mama shout out to mama shout out mama i mean she's coming in clutch with these suggestions she you hand know? wrote your recipe for fredicini alfredo that we're about to make <laughs> well yeah and a whole cookbook yeah well she gave so. uh, she gave us like all handwritten cookbooks a couple of years ago for christmas and i i think it's like the coolest thing ever i love it so much and so, um, yeah, so I asked her what she would make for this dinner party situation, and she told me fettuccine yep. Alfredo. Classic. Classic move. We're going to throw some mushrooms in there um, for a vegetarian alternative, and uh, it's going to be amazing. I'm very excited. Amen. Um, What's your good thing? My good thing is that we're playing pickleball. I don't know if that's a cop-out. We mentioned we did it. talk about it. On the recently. Patreon. Oh. We mentioned on the Patreon. All right, well, this is... I don't care then. Um, <laughs> we're playing pickleball on Sunday, and um, I don't know. I think we're going to become pickleball people because, I don't know, I had a lot of fun. There's Because I haven't, in the past couple of years, played that many games. Like, I really... I mean, I played hockey while I was growing up, and I, like, I love to play ping pong or tennis or just sports. So I think that this is something that we can do. Hell yeah, love that. Anyway... Thank you guys so much for listening. If you would like to check out all the pictures we post of all the stories we talk about, check us out on Instagram at nottoday underscore podcast. Check out our Patreon for exclusive bonus content and Discord server and other fun things at patreon.com slash nottodaypodcast. If you or anyone you know has a story of survival or anything crazy that's happened to them, t- send us your story to knowtodaypodcast at gmail.com. We have a TikTok that is not today podcast and a Twitter that is not today podcast, but the T on the end of podcast is A3. Because that makes sense. Because that makes sense. And just keep breathing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>